Welcome back to the Randin Podcast, Season 2 with Rafi and Chandra. And today we have a special guest. It's Charles Phyllis all the way from the Gold Coast. Uh, there we go. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure, guys. Pleasure to be here. I love it. Nice to have you on. And, <laughs> so uh, Nice to sort of get you on kind of somewhat randomly through a Facebook group. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it, it's some, it works perfectly with the name and and uh, and the ethos of the podcast and when I saw what uh, what you gents were doing I thought that that's great I need to I need to be part of that that's great <laughs> uh, so Charles is our very first non personally known sort of a guest that's on the podcast so this will be our first time kind of interviewing someone that we don't know somewhat well so uh, it'll be a random random chat nonetheless we can make random this like speed dating I think and see see how we go. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure if, like, we tried to give you a little template of the questions, but uh, the very first question I had for you was that, imagine that you went on a blind date and could only share three things about yourself. What would they be? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd have to focus on what makes me me. So I normally say that I like to have a bit of fun. And now you give me three questions, but you didn't say I can't have subsets of those questions all right. So I'm going to sure. break it down. Go nuts. So I like, you know, I like <laughs> to have a bit of fun. What does fun mean to me? Well, and probably things we can expand on is, is I like, I like my toys. So, you know, the cars and, and boats and having a bit of fun, you know, tinkering. I, I love that sort of stuff. Um, I do enjoy a good beverage and for my choice would be whiskey. Um, and that means also going out Good with, choice. you know, friends and, yeah, excellent. <laughs> right here. Got there the, you go. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so good, good whiskey, but also, you know, I'm a South Australian boy, so I grew up around some, some lovely uh, red wines, so I enjoy some wines. And I think that flows into the, the fact that I, don't, I, I like going out and, you know, being social and, um, and, and going out for, for group dinners. I'm not an iCrubby sort of person. That's not my thing, but going out and, uh, and catching up with people and, and doing those things. And, uh, and I think my third point would, would be that I suppose my personality type is, yes, I do the, the run-of-the-mill things that are pretty typical of, of, of a lot of, you know, doctors or medical personnel, health practitioners, whatever you want to say. Uh, but, and I do enjoy what I do, but I, I do like to also have a life away from that as well. So it's not just all medicine, medicine, medicine and, you know, the ridiculous stuff that people look at, Grey's Anatomy and all that crap. It's nothing like that, <laughs> you know, it's uh, if only sometimes, but no. So, yeah, I think that would sum me up is, yes, I work, but I have a bit of fun as well at the same time and, and try and enjoy life as best I can. Just, just because we've dived straight into, like, random questions, do you want to give us a bit of background as to what you actually do, where you're located, and uh, what your day job actually is? Yeah, absolutely. I love this question because you say, I like to, at times when someone asks me the question, they normally expect, a, like, a pretty straightforward or vanilla answer of, you know, I am a GP specialist or I'm a non-GP specialist and this is, this is what I do or I'm in the hospital doing this or that. And so I like to just say, Oh, I do occupational medicine, and then I just go quiet and say, "Let's let's." And people, I just wait. You're going to get the the, the classic two people that will say, "Oh, great," and then the ones say, "What's that?" And then you go down that whole journey <laughs> yeah. of explaining what that is and how it exists and and what it looks like. Um, so yes, for me, I mean, uh, yes, I do occupational medicine, and uh, as well as 
part of that occupational medicine is is the, being involved in visa immigration medicine, aviation medicine, injury management. Uh, I also look after a, a network of doctors and clinics. So I've had some additional training and associate fellowships in health health services management, medical administration, health informatics, um, clinical governance, and patient safety. So. You know, I, I kind of haven't narrowed my scope down to one particular thing. I kind of do a whole bunch of stuff, which I guess as we keep talking might, you know, become clearer. So that's my personality type. I've, I, <laughs> I love doing quite a few different things. Uh, so, yeah, day in the life for me. I do work in clinic four days a week uh, where I'll mix of doing occupational medicine. And that's the normal looking at pre-employments, work injury, risk management, fitness for duty, and making sure that, you know, people that are going to certain roles, the typical ones that we see, like, oh, I'm going to go to a mine site that's somewhere remote. Okay, well, you know, is this person safe to go and do that? Uh, and then we do the other statutory medicals, drivers, trains, ambulance, fire, police, you know, that, that, that's pretty common stuff. I did a lot of work with um, Veterans Affairs as a medical advisor in a previous life. So it's always been up my, my sort of area to, I guess, talk to people, get to know their story, take some interest uh, and then find out ways of managing a problem that doesn't stop someone from achieving what they want to do but doesn't put anyone at unnecessary risk. Um, hmm. And then in the immigration space, yes, obviously we do visa medicals for um, for the Department of Home Affairs. And um, we've got, you know, the clinics I work in have got uh, arrangements with the, 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 the lead contractor who, who does that on behalf of, of the department. Uh, and then my medical administration stuff comes from my interest in being involved in this big corporate that I work for and trying to grow our occupational business and looking at how we do clinical governance and, and uh, patient safety policies, procedures. And, you know, I sort of try and build cultures within organisations where I come into of, of saying, look, I want this to be a just culture we have. I've always found that if we've got really happy, well-supported, educated staff including doctors then inherently we get a pretty good outcome and good quality just by people being happy uh, and I have hmm. a, a bit of an ethos which I've taken from some motorsport background that I've been involved in as well that we don't blame problem we don't blame people ever we blame the problem and then we come back to working out how we prevent the problem from occurring but we never blame people hmm. that's not how it works because it's um it's counterproductive so that's my day in the life, I suppose, of, uh, of, yeah. of medicine that's very different to what most people pretty varied. think. It is, it is very it's varied. Pretty good explanation of what occupational medicine kind of is as well, because I've got to say, like, to be honest, for the longest time, I had no idea what it was either. And that, I'm, I'm curious. To, most people don't know, and, and they, they think... I'm genuinely like curious two minutes to hear, ago. Do you get, <laughs> yeah. they, they say do you get people is, having a bit of a guess at it? That's right, absolutely. And it is... What sort of people... What do people guess occupational medicine even is? Well, I don't think... I haven't had too many people guess because they just give me a blank look. And then I've had the few that would say, <laughs> oh, so that's, yeah, that's mining job, right? They just go, go, go and do a mining medical. So, well, that is one aspect of what we do, but, you know, we do medical assessments for, for risk management, but that would be, that could be for any job, anything at all. Mm. A company saying, hey, we want to manage our workforce and make sure we're hiring the right person for the right job without risking us or them, you know, can you help us? And that's sort of what we try and do and not do the one size fits all uh, here, do this medical, it suits everyone for every single job, because that's not true. That's not the way the world works. You know, um, someone that's going to be largely doing an office role at a computer and they might not need to have this extraordinary, you know, cardiovascular ability of, of a step yeah. test because they're going to be in a, in a remote, hot environment doing insanely uh, heavy manual labour. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. So you, you can't do that. So <laughs> they might be happy just uh, in the office. They're in the office. <laughs> I guess that sort of fits in with your varied uh, aspect of things as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, it suits my personality. I'm, I've always, you know, in the way I practice medicine, I'm very happy not to be trying to deal with black and white all the time. If I need an answer, I need a diagnosis, I must know. Uh, and when I did a lot of disability medical assessment work and, and, um, and report writing and such, I was very happy to deal with the, well, I don't know. We may not know exactly what the answer is here, but the fact is you know, you're a person that's got something that's causing you problems. It's causing you functional impediment. You can't do what you would like to do with your life, and that's unfortunately causing you some impairment. So it doesn't really matter so much right now what this diagnosis is perfectly clear. I'm happy to deal with shades of grey. Let's focus on you as the person and what you can and can't do. And then let's paint the picture that way and see what we can do to help. Uh, so that's why I think occupational medicine is good for me because I can deal with risk management. I can make a decision. I can make recommendations and I can deal with shades of grey. It doesn't bother me at all. And uh, given that like, I also had no idea what it is, what actually put you on the path to occupational medicine? Was it an experience you had or somebody else sort of explained it to you as to what it is? Because I would have never even thought of start looking at it. It's funny, isn't it? I, I went through, you know, my uh, obviously being originally from Adelaide and then uh, I did all my schooling in Adelaide. We moved to the Gold Coast. For me, I was going to come to uni up here. Plus, geez, the weather was good. We were coming up a lot for school holidays anyway. So I thought, this is, this is great. I'm going to live on the Gold Coast. Uh, so I did my training at, you know, on the Gold Coast in the hospital system as well here. Um, so I, I, I got to go through all the various rotations. I did a lot of emergency. I did a lot of internal medicine. I went out rural for a little bit. And then I, I got an amazing role working with a local vitreo retinal surgeon as their private registrar, which gave me a few publications. Um, you know, this person was an excellent, excellent businessman as well. Very, very, very slick, smooth operator at, um, with, with the various clinics, strategic investments, really very clever guy. Uh, so I learned a lot from him on, you know, on, on, well, I came in with ideas that I'd seen from my father's big car dealerships in Adelaide and, and how businesses get run and thinking a little bit entrepreneurial in some regards into how we did things. Uh, and then you combine that with a, a retinal surgeon who's a very, very good surgeon and also very good at business. Uh, it was fantastic for me because I got the ability to run with a few things and, and we got to play with some things. And these are busy, busy private clinics. Uh, and then everyone said, oh, why don't you go on ophthalmology? You know, you, you, you'd done a lot of surgery. You'd done it for a couple of years. You knew it well. It was vitro-retinal. There weren't that many of them. And it was one day I remember I was down at Varsity Lakes and it was an overcast day. It was raining outside. It was miserable. And I went in to, to see a patient and, you know, the room was dimly lit and I sat behind a slit lamp microscope and I grabbed a lens and looked through the microscope in someone's dilated eye to have another look at someone's wet, wet macular degeneration and their OCT on the screen. And I went, can't look through another microscope again. I, I can't do this. You know, <laughs> I love the surgery. Uh, but like, I think a lot of surgeons would say, we hate clinic, but we love operating, but we can only operate <laughs> if we do clinic. So yeah. that, that sort of led me to go, oh, geez, I, you know, I don't know if this is, this is for me, even though it is amazing. Uh, and then other opportunities came up when people said, hey, would you be involved in some clinics we're setting up that, you know, you could come in as medical director sort of role, more looking at how do we build this as a business and a model and someone's IP in their brain that is fantastic. 
how do we get that IP onto paper to make it worth something so that when they die, they don't leave that, they don't take it with them. It becomes a business that they can sell and grow. And then from there, another connection led me into an occupational medicine provider. I met them, started doing some of the, the disability medical assessment work with them, got more involved in the occupational health side and realised it just, I just got it. it. It would fit for me to, to deal with so many people from across the planet and so many different characters. And I love a larrikin and you get a few of them few of the, the gents and, 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 and some of the, the ladies as well, depending on what role they're going for, who have big personalities and are a bit, bit of a larrikin. And, and I loved it. You know, I had a lot of fun with them as well. And, you know, you change the way you consult based on who's sitting across from you uh, and how, you know, uh, what their personality type's like, which was great for me because it was so variable. Uh, so I kind of, you know, through a, not a direct path, just fell into it. I suppose. And before I started to commit too much, I did do my research, spoke to a few uh, well-established occupational doctors to catch up with them and say, hey, you know, what's this actually like, you know? And they seem like they're having a good time, they're enjoying what they're doing. Uh, so I thought, no, this looks, looks pretty good. And for me, someone who doesn't mind analysing data, reviewing reports, giving opinions, answering questions, I quite enjoy it. And that often is what occupational medicine is about. So it gave me the ability to be clinical, do report writing, do medical legal, medical advisory. It sort of gives me everything. And I'm not narrowed into one little focus that, um, that after a while I know with my personality type that I could get bored. <laughs> so I've got, Have to, you read a... got to be careful with my boredom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think uh, you've got a common thread with us. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is common. Um, there's a book... Yeah. Uh, there's a book called Range. I'm not sure if you've read it by a guy called Dave Epstein, which talks about exactly this, that, um, you know, it, it, there's, there was all these studies back in sort of 20 years ago looking at Russian chess prodigies where it's like if you start when you're like three years old and you train them hard, they become like world geniuses. But what they then found was that uh, that only works in like game worlds where you've got defined rules and you can win there, but it doesn't translate to the chaos of everyday reality where if you had a generalist and what they used as an example was Tiger Woods who got that sort of start with golf versus like, um, uh, I'm going blank on his name. Um, the Swedish guy as the, the, uh, the current, uh, like when I keep, keep saying Pat Rafter, but it's not, it's the current, uh, uh, Rafa, uh, not uh, Roger, uh, Roger, uh, Roger, yeah, yeah, Roger, Federer, Roger yeah. Federer. The man, yeah, yeah, yeah. the legend. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So for some reason, I just couldn't get his name out. So he supposedly started off with like a whole bunch of different sports. And the Ash Barty story is exactly the same as well, where she's got a big range of different sports she could be good at. She just happens to narrow down to one mm. uh, and excelled. And like, you know, I think uh, Roger even started far, far later and still got to number one, uh, but doesn't seem to have that sort of, uh, you know, uh, perpetually sort of burdened sort of a persona. He seems like he's just having fun playing tennis where the other people are driven to the point where they're kind of like, that's it. You've got to win. Mm. That sort of aggressive must win, must demolish the other guy persona. So yeah, I think uh, having a bit of range and whatnot is a particularly useful skill set, especially going forward. Um, what I wanted to ask is given that you had this wide range of background coming from like, you know, your father and the car delicious and whatnot, what even made you get into med and not go completely mm. like, you know, medicine does not involve fast things generally. No. It doesn't involve what the things that you've described, like as in of the career pathways, the one you've chosen seems to fit your personality quite well, mm. but it's not 
like overall, that's not the trajectory that's kind of like, that's not the tram tracks that medicine gives you. Like no, you've chosen it and you've run there. with it and you've made it your own. Mm, yeah. How so what made you choose? Look, you know, I, I think you'll... Why med to start off with and why, yeah. I think you'll find that within all these stories, the common thread is you'd normally know someone who's who's a doctor or you've been involved somewhere or some family member is it. So on not nothing in my father's side, but on my mother's side, uh, her cousins and great-grandfathers and stuff were all mostly orthopedic surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons, surgeon general, you know, when they all came across from Scotland... So there were, and I grew up with, uh, on, we had, you know, in Adelaide off, on the Murray River, we had a houseboat, we did water skiing, we had all the fast toys, uh, you know, bless my old man for, for being pretty generous for letting us have all, have fun with his toys. Um, but we did grow up with an orthopedic surgeon in Adelaide who, you know, was, was a fantastic guy and, and, and I really admired him and enjoyed his company and I enjoyed his dialogue and, and discussion and, and what he seemed to do he seemed pretty cool. Uh, and then... Yeah, I, I think growing up as a kid, like I was an asthmatic, so you sort of get to, you're around doctors and you're seeing things a bit, so it became something familiar to me. And I had an interest going through school, I kind of always had an interest in, in the sciences and, and biology, so it became a bit of a natural fit that I, once I made a decision, also a bit of my personality type, that they, that's what I'm going to do, then that's what I did. And there's ne- hmm. it's never normally a straight path into, oh, I'm gonna, you know, I remember in year six, year seven, you know, you're in... Back in that the school I went to, you, you had chapel or whatnot, and they asked questions about, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I had, you know, friends telling me ridiculous things that Year Seven kids would say. I'm going to be an astrophysicist, and I thought, oh, jeez, uh, and, and all sorts of stuff that was insane. And I said, I'm going to marine be, biologist uh, as the other one. Or something. I, won't, I won't say anything because my cousin's a PhD marine biologist, so I won't tease him on it. Uh, we had a competition who got doctor first, and I said, well, yours actually counts, but I'm the medical doctor. Uh, so I still won, but he's actually got the PhD. Uh, but yeah, so marine biologist won, and I said, I'll be a doctor. And everyone said, oh, what else? I said, no, I'm going to be a doctor. And then I went through high school, and I think it was year 10, they get you to do some questionnaires so they can start career planning for you through year 11 to 12. And mine came back and said, I'm going to be a doctor. I said, you've never said anything else. I said, no, no, I said, that's what I'm going to do. That's my personality type, but I'm, I'm going to be a doctor. That's what I'm going to do. Well, what if you're not going to be a doctor? Like, what's your backup plan? I said, no, 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 there's not. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> And everyone wanted to say, you need something else that I don't. I, I know that it might not be a straight path and maybe the path is going to have a few zigzags there and whatnot, but I can always loop back and eventually get there if I've got that as my goal and where I want to be. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, and that's kind of exactly what I did. And it wasn't a straight line path from there. Like I did biomedical science first. There's still a challenge to get into a program. Then you have to get onto a program to get through a program. You've got to do all those things. Um, but, you know, largely that was that was all part of the journey. So... Yeah, it's, it, it only came down to, I knew people around me that were doctors. I liked them. I enjoyed their company and what they did. They seemed like they were having a good time. Yes, a few of them also had an interest in fast cars, which I loved and grew up with, with the car dealerships. <laughs> they, albeit they normally couldn't drive them, but they did like them. Um, <laughs> they still like to visit the car dealership either way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They still, yes, and some of them had a habit of visiting dealerships very often and, and expensive cars, <laughs> which I then got to um, play with. So yeah, it was it wasn't direct. Like I, you know, none of my parents are doctors. Um, it just came through that that contact of being around people who I enjoyed their company, who were who were unique individuals that were doctors. Fair enough. Any interesting zigzags along the way to becoming a doctor? You mentioned that there was a few deviations. Yeah. Look, you know, you always think oh, I just want to you know finish year twelve, go straight into to medicine and do this and that, and that 
largely is actually not the easiest thing to do. Um, and, and the pathway I took meant that I did probably because I, I thought, well, I wouldn't mind having a, a little bit of life experience first, not going to medicine like, because, you know, in Adelaide, you finish year 12 and you're like 17. So I thought, I don't think I'm quite ready for that yet. Plus, truth be told, going to university, I didn't know how to study. No idea, really, to, to, to work out what it's like to study. You had no clue. So biomedical science was, um, was, a, was a good entry point to learn a lot of the grounding, learn how to study, which I learned from that first semester. I was shocked at some of the grades I got thinking, oh, my God, I've never had grades this bad in my life, so now I need to actually realise this is how you study. So totally different world for me. Uh, and then, yeah, then during, you know, that, that was a bit of fun, a bit of time off into medicine. Unfortunately, during medicine, you know, I got quite unwell. Um, and because it's always a, the programs these days, it's not subjects, you know, it's always year by year. So if you think, well, I've got to take some time off because I've, I've got sick and I was in hospital and stuff, then um, you can't just pick up a subject and keep going next semester. You, you're, you're kind of forced that you've got to take a year off and then join the next program. Mm. which really bothered me so badly because I, you know, when, when I start something, I've got to get it done. But I kind of had no choice as well, like, a, you know, and in, in reality, it was actually a great thing. Uh, so that time that I, you know, when I took the year off, I, you know, recovered my health and got back, um, you know, got back to, to, to far better function and, you know, my asthma and, you know, some things like that. I just had to get everything under control again, get my fitness back and all that. Uh, and in that time, I thought, well, you know, what can I do to keep myself occupied? Well, I know cars, I know boats, uh, I know sails, and I can have a bit of fun doing it without much pressure. So uh, I decided that I would go and work for, for a few of the pretty big uh, international you know, boat manufacturers and, and sell boats, but mostly for me, I didn't really care about selling boats and, you know, and, and all the commission and the wage. I just liked being around the boats and the toys, and, the, and I knew the products really well. Um, and then I you know, moved around a few different manufacturers to, to, to play, uh, and then I also I was like, well, I need to at some point make some money when I'm, you know, as well, put some money away. As a med student, it's very hard to work at the same time. You know, you kind of work almost a full-time job for free. Plus, you're giving the universities often a bit of money or it costs money to even do things. So I thought, I've, I've got to have to sell some big boats and look after them and skip with them and stuff for friends of ours who want to sell their boat. They're over it and they don't know how to do it. Well, I can go on the boat, get all the photos done, get it cleaned up, make sure everything's working do sea trials, do everything and sell it for them and, and take a percentage commission. So I did a few of those. You only need to do, you know, like as a student back then, I only need to do three or four deals a year like that on these bigger boats because the commission was quite high. Um, and that made, you know, made life a bit of fun. Plus for me, it was, it was great. You know, if you're out um, doing a photo shoot on someone else's, well, you know, even a manufacturer, a factory boat on a factory owned 50 foot flybridge and you're not paying the fuel bill and they've got a helicopter doing shoots on the boat while you're doing it and you're allowed to have the thing at wide open throttle a 50 footer doing 32 knots at you know 800 liters an hour combined fuel uh and you're not paying the bill it's a lot of fun <laughs> maybe you should go back to it right now with the current fuel yeah. Bill. Oh, geez, yeah you got i don't you think you'd run the, the fuel budget <laughs> No, you couldn't even run. You it. might have to swim. And uh, so that you know that that was my deviation there of um, of going in and doing a bit of things for a bit of fun, like for a bit of me time too. I loved being on the water. Um, so, so yeah, that got me. I imagine that sort of you know learning to sell a boat was not really part of the BMET side degree up until then. <laughs> no, gosh, um. no. But, but mate, I, I had been wheeling and dealing since I was a kid. Lee and I used to when I was going through probably from year eight to year eleven until. I realised I wanted to do medicine. I need to look after my hands and shoulders. I used to race um, mountain bikes downhill, 
and I loved mm. it. It was fast. It was dangerous. I always had the need for speed. Um, and I wanted this. I needed a particularly good downhill race bike. And back then, they were not very cheap. They're still not cheap. So I had to hustle and, and garage sale things and sell stuff to try and get some money up to do it. So, you know, hustling and wheeling, dealing and selling stuff was, was sort of in my, in my DNA from the start. Uh, so, right, so you're just sort of evolving the hustling and the selling to go, okay, well, we've got the selling skills. What's something to sell? Exactly, exactly. And, and then it's just sort of really reapplying those skills to a new area. Exactly, yeah. And I tell you, some of those skills um, that, that come into sales, People go, how's it applied to medicine? And and I and I, and I laugh because every you know I'm just thinking right now of a reference I always see and I shake my head going, there's nothing tricky about that story. But everyone laughs about it, and thinks it's so incredible. When you think of you know Jordan Belfort and the Wolf of Wall Street and sell me this pen, there's nothing new mm. about that. That that's that that's been around from you know the 70s and 80s. Like I remember when my father was president of the Australian Automobile Dealer Association and teaching training people how to sell. There was nothing tricky about send me this pen. What he's trying to get you to do is ask questions and qualify someone. And you learn very quickly, especially selling boats at a very big boat show where people are coming to just have a day out and look. So, and your job as a salesperson is, I want to sell boats today. And I, I, I don't want to, you know, without sounding rude, I don't want to waste my time on people that actually don't want to buy a boat today. They just want to have a look over the boat and dream and have a great time, which I, I do myself. So happy to you, but... They're not the people I want to focus my attention on. I want to find the real buyers who have come to the show. They think they can get a discount, which we can negotiate because normally we can. So you've got to qualify. So that whole sell me this pen is asking qualifying questions. And in reality, everything we do as doctors when you're taking history and all that is asking qualifying questions. Now, obviously, we're not trying hmm. to ask qualifying questions to then make a sale, but we are still asking qualifying questions. So it was... I'd actually say it's interesting because I think there's a lot of sales in medicine because I ended up doing a lot of salesy stuff in um, doing med school. That was my part-time job. Yep. And um, actually a lot of those skills end up quite helpful because essentially it's about how do you make some, somebody or how do you convey the value of something to somebody as well. And for example, ophthalmology, uh, if you have a, a patient that you're treating for glaucoma, so that's a condition where the pressure is a bit high in the eye, um, Essentially, you're going to give them some treatment, which is just going to make their eyes feel a bit stingy and is not going to actually improve their vision and it's a lifelong treatment. Um, and it doesn't really, you don't notice anything of benefit. If at all, you feel a bit worse and the best case outcome is at the end of your life, you never really noticed that you had a problem with glaucoma. So it's not very thankful, kind of thankful kind of treatment. But a lot of the sales skills and things is about, well, how do you convey that to a patient in a way that makes sense and makes them want to actually be compliant with their treatment? So rather than just telling them how you need to take this, it's how do you create that, you know, the value for them of, oh, well, sure, they might not be worried about their vision's fine, but they might be worried about, well, actually, I would like to be able to take my grandkids uh, down the aisle and be able to see them. Um, and so being able to communicate that way in sales comes across, I think, a lot in medicine. Absolutely, and pardon the pun, but I would say that you, the same thing. We're not, you know, we're not selling something, but we are anything. I think any sale, any product someone wants to buy, is you're assisting someone understand the value of what they're looking at. You know, it's a value proposition, and someone either agrees with the value that that is value valuable to me, and I'm willing to do that. And so I like the the scenario you're explaining. 
I would be trying to, if I wanted to get someone to engage on, on treatment that was going to be beneficial to them, given you know, that, the value prospect of doing that. But then also you kind of are selling them, pardon the pun, a vision of what it can look like if you can do these things. <laughs> yes. So they get that mm. value that they're looking for long term, right? So that's, yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's huge crossovers. I know I was probably being very cautious with not trying to suggest that we do sales and medicine. Well, of course, you don't sell. Yeah. That, you know, that's a different <laughs> angle of that. <laughs> yeah. But I mean just everyday, regular, old, boring treatments that are genuinely beneficial for people. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, so <laughs> it's kind of interesting to see how you've sort of managed your sales along and then managed to apply that even before you even started medicine yeah well you know, it, it's I'd, uh, i had to survive and i had to do things to keep myself interested um and i still do now like I, you know i've done i've done a bit of motorsport i've been lucky to be around people that uh, yes i've had some fast cars myself but you know they're road cars and so I've, then i've driven um some proper race cars and you would drive them on a racetrack and a road car's a joke, you know, like it's, it's really, it's a joke. It's not, they're so compromised in what they do. And then you put them on a race track and they fall apart. Anyway, they just follow themselves. Uh, so a race car obviously is shocking on the road, horrible, but on a track, you put them in the right situation. It's quite a lot of fun, right? Everything in its right environment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So everything's got to be, you know, specifically doing what it's got to do. Um, which is probably why I've, have ended up where I've ended up in the sort of work that I do as well. Cause that's what, what we look at that, you know, you're doing the right person for the right job. Um, so for me, it was, it, it was always about the right toy. What can I be around? I love it. The need for speed. Um, I, I mean, I've got a hilarious story and it's great when you're playing and, you know, saying this with all due respect, when you're playing with someone else's money, it's great shopping. Because they'll say, I want this, I want to do this and that. And think, well, I can spend your money. I'll tell you exactly what I would do. You know, and this will be so much fun, but our values may not align. So you, you, you tell me what you really need and I'll try and achieve that for you or give you my opinion. And I had this brilliant bloke who wanted to buy this 26-foot, which is a good size boat, a good size day boat for cruising around most parts of the, of the water, not really open ocean so much, but protective waterways and stuff like that. Still a good size boat. Uh, it was a cuddy cabin. It was an American boat called a Cobalt, which was exceptionally well built. Kevlar reinforced hull, very strong, offshore racing pedigree hull. They always run massive engines for the weight and size of the boat. Um, beautiful boat. And no one wanted to touch it. A lot of people didn't know what a Cobalt was. I did. And I said, this is a hell of a boat and it's not a lot of money. Uh, and he was based in Sydney and we had to do all the deal. And back then, there was no, like I think back then, there was the phone I had, there was no FaceTime. There was no video stuff on phones. Like, we didn't do that. So I did videos and I would burn things onto a CD and, and then express post them down to him so he could he could see the video. You know, he could live this boat before he actually got it and see what it was going to be like. He was ordering parts for that boat from America for the engine before he even signed a contract. I knew I had him because of that. He told me. He shouldn't have told me. Uh, but then he said, look, I really need you to do me a favour. I want to know how fast the thing is on, on the top end. So can you do a, do a you know, top speed run for me on it? I'm like, not a problem, <laughs> sir. Absolutely. Happy to oblige. Happy to oblige. So you, you, you were like the lifestyle vlogger before YouTube was even a thing. <laughs> I, I might, yeah, actually, geez, think of that. I should have had camera and all that stuff. I didn't even think of it. 
But, um, yeah, so I took that boat out through the Gold Coast Seaway, and we're talking 26-foot boat with a high-output 8.1-litre V8 engine in it. Um, you know, I think it was – and it had some tuning on there. So I was probably pushing out by that stage with a tuning 470 horsepower, you know, on it. Um, and they didn't weigh a lot. They're a very strong hull with a Kevlar. And I, I don't normally back off. I normally would go, no, I'm, I'll, I will tell you how quick this boat goes. But not a lot of areas that I could go on the broadboard of legally that fast without scaring other people. So I went straight out through the Gold Coast Seaway out the ocean because it was a pretty nice uh, late afternoon. The seaway was sort of stagnant. Nice it, was, you know, it wasn't wind over tide or tide over current. It was pretty flat. Uh, and I remember normally you can get these boats onto the red line at five, five and a half thousand revs, fully trimmed up because there's no gears in the boats, obviously. They're always like being in fourth gear. So you're really opening this thing up. And yeah, I, I remember pulling back and saying, no, I'm done at 73 <laughs> mile an hour. Um, so we're talking 73 knots, you know, you, 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 you're 100, 130-ish, 100, getting close to 140k an hour um, on the boat. And, I mean, I'm talking this thing is you trim the boat up out the water for less drag. You will, There's probably no boat in the water anymore, just the leg. And at that speed, they start to get a little sketchy if there's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of wash or whatnot. And I pulled it, I think I got about 73 mile an hour and then pulled it back down and put it back in the water and slowed it down. Then I sent in the video and said, listen, mate, it wasn't even on the red line. Like I, had, I hadn't hit the rev limiter. This boat's going to do, a, you know, probably 80 mile an hour, but um, I suggest you do it on a, on a river, not, not out in the ocean because it's too sketchy. <laughs> Uh, but geez, we, you know, that was a sort of fun thing she did get to do. Um, so I, I was lucky having, having a lot of fun driving some vast boats and, uh, and that was a boat that I'll, I won't forget because it was so unassuming. Wow. I'm surprised you, you came back to, uh, doing medicine again. Yeah. Look, I think there's times I thought it's not always going to be that fun and it is an industry that, you know, that it, yeah. it's tough and I've got friends, um, you know, like the, the family who, who started Riviera Motor Yachts, like I know them personally, and then they, they've obviously got Maritimo now, and um, a lot of the big boat manufacturers, like you, you know them all. And a lot of them don't have great stories where they've, they've lost everything or they've lost the whole business, they've lost the house. You know, it's really not, not gone well. Um, so, yeah. It, it's the nature of sales, right? It comes in cycles based on the economy and everything absolutely. else. I'm just kind of surprised to hear. So it sounds like Chandra's had sales experience in med school, I used to work for Tandy, Dick Smith, yep. and Harvey Norman. Yep. Um, and so you, wow, so a lot more in common than I was expecting. I think it's the, it's the nature of, you know, uh, of the hustle and, and well, sales and medicine. There's a lot of dealing with and talking to people, you know, isn't it? Hmm. Uh, and you're finding out pretty quickly. It's communication you know, skills. What do you need? What can we do? What's, what's happening here? Tell me the story and getting all that information. Uh, so, yeah, I've had a unique journey, but um, it's been a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, no, it sounds it. It sounds it. A um, couple of questions, though, just to because uh, we've kind of focused a, a lot on the medical side of things. And it sounds like you've got a lot of outside interests, like a lot outside the medicine. So how do you find that? Do you like do you have would you say you've got a good sort of work life balance at the moment? And if so, like any secret source elements ah, to it? God, you know what? I'd be lying if I said I did. I have a terrible work life balance at the moment. Um, and I'm changing that. I'm making some changes to try and, to try and fix that. I, like, I, you know, I do work too much, um, but that's the nature of the role and what I do and that being involved in, in a big corporate that has undergone rebranding and changes is growing a new business. I normally, and it sort of came back from, you know, growing up around motorsport, and I love the idea that Peter Brock, you know, rest in peace, he, um, he used to say, you know, no, you should, 
bite off more than you can chew and then chew like hell. And I have kind of lived with that a little bit of, all right, I'll bite off a bit more than I can chew, then chew like hell and hope you don't choke. Uh, and now it's got to the point where, yes, you know, it wasn't so good and, and you try and get that back. Um, but you can't, I've found, you can't do the thing like, I need work-life balance and I need to enjoy my life a bit more. I'm going to go and buy a jet ski and then not make changes because you're going to hate <laughs> that damn jet ski when it doesn't work when you don't use it. And same with a boat. Absolutely. You know, like you're going to go yeah. and buy a boat and not use it very often and realize they cost a fortune when you don't use them and don't do constant preventative maintenance and you're going to hate it and you're going to say I'm never buying the boat again the, the best happiest days when I bought the boat and I sold the boat and that's not true <laughs> they should be so much fun all the time so no, I don't mm. have any secrets there and uh, in reality I think I think you need to be and I was I made active decisions about my career path in medicine I have a, my best friend who is a, a surgeon uh, and general surgeon who's done you know, his additional training in HPB I mean, that's this guy's been in hospitals and training to be this surgeon for like twelve years, and, and I've seen his life, and and you know his life can look amazing at the end of it all. But I said, I'm not doing that. I'm just, you know, I've got other things that I can do. I've got entrepreneurial spirit and been involved in a few startup companies and involved in a biotech company that, that one of my best mates is doing. Um, you know, shareholding in other businesses. Like I, I've tried to find other things that keep me entertained and interested where I don't, I wasn't going to commit to one of those ridiculous pathways that I see so much of in the colleges now, which I think is a reflection on how much medicine has to change. It really needs to, to get with the times a little bit and how they do things. But I said, that's not me. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm going to enjoy my life. Uh, and a lot of people think, you know, you look at the numbers, a very small percentage of people on the planet who are insanely successful, if that's what drives you, uh, are not doctors. So, like, what do you so mean? So, the most, some of the most successful people on the planet, uh, you know, and, mm-hmm. and they've worked very hard and done all that there, and they're in the top whatever percentage you want to say. Uh, inherently, more often than not, not doctors. They are in another industry. Are not doctors. Yeah, yeah. they're not doctors. Mm-hmm. So, people are going and say, I want to be, and like, you know, the, the ophthalmologist I worked with, very successful, very successful guy, you know, millions of dollars per year. But, geez, did he, did he work for it, you know? Uh, and then I look at, other friends of mine who might, and they also had to work for it, but a little less now, who might be senior partners or partners in a big law firm. And it's ridiculous. You know, it's insane what, what some of them can generate, if that's what motivates you. Uh, and Well, I think that's the thing, right? Like uh, with, with medicines, it's inherently currently designed to not be scalable. It's always a, usually a one-to-one mm. thing. And at most, all you can do is still trade time for a high dollar amount but still a trading time for money. So there's always the, yes, if you if it's monetary success that you're after, you, you basically, to use your boat analogy, you have to redline to, like that's ultimately where you end up at unless you start to venture out and do uh, more scalable things. Like, I mean, one of the reasons for the podcast was like, we actually wanted to do something where we could record it once. Like we routinely have these chats anyway. And we're like, well, if we're going to do it, it's not that much more effort to put it out. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's like 10 people listen or 10,000 people listen. And I'm new to the whole, do things that are scalable. I was like, yeah, let's try it with this. And that was one of the other motivations for the podcast itself. And I love that. I love the idea that um, if you're having a yarn and you're having a chat about all sorts of questions in life and thinking about it, you know, probably a lot of, a lot of other people are thinking about it too. So record it, share it. And, and who knows where that's going to go? 
uh, and that's yeah. uh, that's why. Well, I, I mean, this interview by itself is like you know a product of just that huge, one random huge thing. chance interaction and uh, you know, people saying, "I yeah. like that. That's great." You know, um, I want to be part of it because really, for me, I sit there and go, "Yeah, let's have let's have a yarn, let's have a chat, and and <laughs> and see where it goes." And I love the you know uh, the idea of talk about anything and everything. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, like you've described, a lot of like you know what randomness is about is the sort of the sliding door moments that are just totally random. Things happen, like you know, you falling sick during med school was not something you could have predicted, mm. but then it go- gave you this deviation. But that deviation was like at the time, I'm sure you went and looked at it and was like a big negative. But usually, those are the best stories, right? Like oh, that's 100%. how you end up with this. Yeah, and it's always like in retrospect, like you know, life is kind of almost lived properly in retrospect because you look at it and you're like, yeah, I have this really interesting deviation and that's where all the stories are. It's all the branches, not where the tram tracks are, where it was already pre-laid for you because there's a template to do everything. And uh, that was, you know, that's what this podcast is all about, trying to find those interesting nuggets so that if people are deviating away, they look at it and you go, that's, this is the fun stuff. This is the stuff you look back at. Absolutely. Um, and it's not always a straight line. It's not always perfect. There's ups and downs. There's, and then there's times that you think, oh, Am I going to go that direction or not? And I think sometimes you do. You have to. You've got to look at it and think, oh, I've got to look at this uh, and yeah. uh, and see where it takes you. So you were saying that at the moment you're working so hard and you haven't got much of a work-life balance. Has there been anything new that's actually put a challenge on it? And what are you doing about it? Um, I mean, look, life is inherently busy and it gets busier you know, with time and, and, and with things that you do. I've always been mindful that if you do take on more roles, which might mean that, you you know, how your remuneration goes up or your success or perceived success, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, your fee for service of what you do is, is priced according to your skill set and what you deliver. You always run the risk then of starting to overwork and stop doing the things you enjoy that were giving you joy that made you good at what you would do so that you could add value to an organization. And I'm so mindful of that now of saying, hang on, you know, you've, you've got to enjoy life and take those steps of saying, no, I'm not going to, I'm actually no longer going to bite off more than I can chew and chew like hell. I'm going to chew like hell for what I've got and then maintain. Uh, but then there's times that my jaw hurts and I need a break. And, and taking those times to look at that and think, no, 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 I need to have a bit of fun too. And that doesn't mean, and I know people sit there and go, oh, there you go and have a midlife crisis and go and buy some, some convertible car. Like, I, I think that's, you know, that's, that's <laughs> crap. I think there's times you've got to do things that make you happy, right? And, and yeah, sure, going and buying a convertible car is probably not something that would make me very, very happy, but that's only because I love cars. Well, I mean, if that's you know, what floats your boat, you know. Exactly. Exactly. So if it makes also, happy, if you've been buying convertible cars the whole time, yeah, enjoy. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, <laughs> see, that's a different story for me because I'd start thinking about mm. the, the, the dynamics of a car and saying, well, you know, a yeah. shoebox is pretty strong <laughs> until you take the lid off it and then it becomes pretty flimsy, right? So unless this car was designed to be a converted from the start, it's inherently mm. a flawed car with a crappy chassis, so I don't want it. You know, it'll flex. <laughs> okay, if you're going to have a midlife crisis right now, what would you mm. do? What would you buy? It's obviously not a convertible. What would be your well, midlife crisis? Would it crisis? be a car? Not, yeah. Oh, no. I, I, look, I love car. I have a lovely car. It's a great car. Um, so I'm very happy with that. And it does. What is uh, it? I have a, a BMW. I've got an M3 competition, and it is one of the best cars I've ever owned. It has outrageous power. Nice. It's so much fun. It is a brilliantly designed car, even though it's getting heavier. 
Um, and I can have it in just the chilled out, relaxed mode where it makes very little noise and drives like a nice three series limo. And then I can put it into track modes where it, it is, it's ridiculous. Like you have to be careful with these cars that they're so, they're so well designed. They've got such particular tyres that if someone jumped in this car and didn't respect it on a cold morning after it had warmed up the engine a bit and tried to drive silly, they will probably end up off the road because if the tyres don't have the right pressure on them and they don't have the right temperature in them, it is an undrivable car. I love that. I, <laughs> I like completely understand. Things. I really do. I had an yeah. <laughs> um, But yes, if you don't have appropriate pressures and temperatures and a lot of things, these and just like a race car, these cars are impossible to drive. They will snap on you. They will do all sorts of things. Uh, so for me, I'm happy with the car. A midlife thing for me was, look, I, it probably would be a boat. Um, and I would probably do something nonsensible like... I have seen... Well, it's a midlife it's a process. Midlife you can't class. be sensible, be sensible for it. So <laughs> I would, it has to be yellow or yeah, red. <laughs> and, and I had a break in my mind right then. Um, I would be thinking of like 30, 40 foot, you know, offshore race boat, basically, like a like a cigarette or a formula, uh, a Donzi or even a Cobalt. I'm just thinking there's one for sale in Sydney Harbour at the moment, actually. I've seen it. For, I've known that boat for years. And it's a Cobalt 343. Can you describe that for our listeners who are not very uh, boat friendly? <laughs> All right. So this boat that, that's in Sydney Harbour, that would be a hugely fun toy. You're talking 34-foot boat. So it's a good-sized boat. On the water, you walk up and say, that's a big boat. That is a good-sized boat. Uh, and it does have a cabin downstairs that has a bathroom and you can turn the dinette, which is a, like a, a V-shaped berth in the front of the hull where the hull tapers into the nose. You can turn it into a bed. It's got a little kitchen. It's got a TV. It's got all those things. You can stay overnight on these boats. You really can. Not perfectly, but you, you can do it. Really, it's designed that you go places quickly. You drop the anchor. You swim off the boat. You, you have fun. You know, you normally don't run bimini covers and stuff to keep the sun off you because they're so fast, these boats, that those covers rip off or you damage them, so you, you don't. Wow. You, you put them down when you go in and put them back up when you get there. So this is a 34-foot offshore racing-style hull boat, so it's very sleek. It's very streamlined. It's normally much longer waterline length than its width, so it's, it looks like an arrow in the water. And this boat runs twin, so two engines, and both of them are 8.1-litre V8. Sometimes they're supercharged, sometimes they're not. So it's a boat that's getting close to 1,000 horsepower that doesn't weigh very much, is 34 foot long and has a Kevlar reinforced hull. And a 34 foot boat inherently shouldn't, because it's getting bigger and heavier, shouldn't be that fast. But I know for a fact that a boat like that can easily do 120 to 130 kilometers an hour in the water. Easily. So you can do wow. you know, 65, 70 knots, 70 knots in those, no problems at all. Uh, and they make a hell of a lot of noise doing it because they've normally got straight through, they've got switchable exhaust. So off the engine manifolds, you've got the exhaust straight out the side of the boat. So this is like having a straight-through exhaust and it makes a lot of noise. Obviously, the difference between cars and boats. In cars, you know, the underbody's open, so off the engine, you can have the exhaust manifolds and running under the car as the car's travelling at speed, engine gets hot, exhaust gets hot, cool air coming through the car will cool down the exhaust system. In a boat, the engines are in an engine room and there's no... You can't have the engines just exposed through noise and various reasons. Um, so there's no fresh air going in. There's not enough cool air going through to cool these engines down. So you need to have exhaust manifolds with risers that bring fresh or salt water in around the pipework to cool it down so you don't overheat and melt the engines, basically, um, which sometimes takes away the noise. But if you've got a flickable exhaust, you can still cool them, but you can just shorten the exhaust route. So instead of being underwater exhaust out of the boat, they go straight out the side. And... 
This is I'm talking. The people know you're going they fast. They know you're going. They know when you when the boat sounds fast when you just start it up. <laughs> and that's sort of got you know that gets me. You start up a, a cold big block V8 uh, with a straight through exhaust on a marina because you're on water anyway, so it's going to echo. Yep, that'll get me. So that would be my. So if we're ever in the Gold Coast and we can hear the boat, we'll <laughs> know me. it's you. Me do it, you we know, wide open throttle at sixty-five mile an hour on a thirty-four foot boat. Yep, that would be me. The problem I've got, you know, I've got to be, I've got to be sensible. It'd be a boat that I'd say, how much, how good is this thing? But with my, you know, Scottish English heritage, it doesn't take me long in the sun. I'm burnt, so I can't, I've got to put the bimini up and go slow. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm cooked. I can't. I'll get there and I'll hate the rest of the day. I won't enjoy it. <laughs> The sun Lots doesn't agree with your oh, plan. Sunscreen and zinc, yep. <laughs> so, yes, that would be my midlife crisis of, of something just ridiculous like that that would be impossible to sell that boat later unless I sell it to another person like me who's also going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a plentiful supply of that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, that boat has changed hands a few times, so I've seen the people that have gone through this and you can, you can see it's a pattern uh, what happens. But, geez, you have fun doing it. I was going to ask you a question, which was like, but you've kind of half answered it already, which is like, you've got a variety of interests and how are you combining them slash keeping them separate? And is that intentional? And it sounds like from your career point of view, you've kind of combined all the various aspects that interest you uh, into occupational medicine, which in itself you found interesting. Mm. But from your from the other side, would you tr- like, I mean, you're kind of already doing it with all the occupational health um, uh, side of things in terms of the assessments, but would you actually try to get into, I don't know, like I, I think you're already an aeronautical assessor. Like yes, the, I'm aviation medical examiner. Yeah. A, a part of the reason I did yeah. it was, yes, I have, my father was a pilot and he had a little airline company in Adelaide alongside the car dealerships with little turboprop planes. Uh, I love flying, love flying. Um, so for me, if I could have the passion of, you know, assessing people, talking to them about aircraft, I know aircraft pretty well. Uh, I've flown fixed wing, I've flown you know, rotaries to the choppers as well. Uh, I do it in the, the sort of the tight-ass way rather than committing to a going through a whole private pilot licence or commercial pilot licence, which costs money and time, which I didn't have. I could keep doing uh, trial introductory flights at these flight schools, get to know them really well. It was cheaper and those hours would still count. They may have changed things now, I haven't kept up with it, but it was a great way to keep flying where you basically can, can fly and take control yourself because the instructors know you so well. Um, but without that commitment that I really didn't think I could make. And dad had been, you know, being a pilot said to me, if you're not going to, if you're going to go and do your PPL and, and, you know, and, and have a, and buy a plane or buy, buy, you know, a little Robinson R22 heli, which are not exceptionally expensive things. If you're not flying all the time, you're dangerous. If you're not doing hours all the time, you're dangerous because you're dangerous when something goes wrong and you don't know how to manage it. And that's what these great mm. pilots and, you know, I don't know if anyone in, in who's done a, the, the aviation course previously would have gone to ANSET Aviation in, um, in you know, near Tullamarine and, and those simulators. Like, the simulator work is incredible. And the idea being that, you know, you've got to throw people into situations they're unlikely to encounter, but if they ever do see it in the real real world, that they know how to manage it. Uh, where well, we, you know, just like doing, like, ALS, BLS training, absolutely. right? Like, I mean, the entire thing is you don't want to figure out the solution at the crisis. Absolutely. You want your common crises, just brainstem level, you can just execute. Although it does make for an interesting time. Like I think we had a recent recess where basically we had someone in conscious VT. So Oof. really fast heart yep. rate for those non-medical, but she was totally stable. Like blood pressure is okay. And she will happen to be 
an ex-nurse who's a drug rep who's going to be my patient. We hadn't done anything. So she was going, what's going on? And I was like, well, this is the rhythm you're in. She's like, well, that's pretty bad. Yep. What are we doing? I'm like, well, I can get a drip in. So the normal sequence is they're usually unconscious. Mm. You sedate mm-hmm. them and you put those pads on and you do the Grey's Anatomy jump start sort of a thing. <laughs> yep. But not when they're conscious. So we just kind of were ready and we just kind of sat there and we're like, we know what to do if things go bad. Yep. We just don't know what to do when you're in this in-between state of there's no document for it. So it's like, you know, sometimes you're ready for the crisis, but you're not quite there yet. So you have to sit. And it's like a really awkward moment. Isn't it? And, and thankfully she was fine. Yeah. You're making a call, aren't you? Of Are we going to be yeah. proactive and do something about this now? Are we going to wait for this person to actually drop off and then pounce? Like, what? which one is it? Which pathway are you going to choose? Yeah. And, and, and sometimes you ask the question of, is there going to be a difference? Now, what's the outcome going to look like? Here? Well, this time we did nothing and it was good because we were in a small day surgery center that didn't have the equipment. Mm. So if you sedate and shock, the subsequent management we couldn't do. Yep. And we were like five stories high up. Yep. So even getting the ambulance people up there was a challenge yep. through the small elevators. So we decided to just hold off, get her down, get her to an appropriate level that they could manage further. But it was a very awkward, like all the alarms are beeping. Mm. You're sitting there going we're going to have to draw a line here. And if you like, we've got to just stop and slow down because any further and we could just F this up. Yeah. Quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that's, isn't that, that's stopping and, and, and taking, and I think that's, you know, a little bit of Ahmed and a little bit of medical administration is sometimes you've got to stand back on the balcony, look back at everything that's going on around you and say, Ooh, where's this heading? What does this look like? Hang on a minute. What are we missing here? And I think exactly the situation you're describing sounds like what, what a lot of the really experienced good pilots talk about is, you know, people think these planes, oh, the plane will fly itself and land itself. But, well, no, it won't. There's under certain conditions these things can do a lot of that stuff. But you, And it's the same with driving a car quickly on a track or driving a boat at speed in offshore conditions. You need to be ahead of what you're doing. You need to be ahead of the boat, ahead of the car, ahead of the plane at all times. Because if you let it get ahead of you, you're out of control. You know, and, and, and that well, can happen. I think what you're describing is this, you know, as things become more consumer friendly, like say the iPhone, right? And what you're saying, people didn't have phones that could make video calls. Like, well, remember the three mobiles came up with it, but it was clunky, right? Like, so then eventually you get down to this thing where you press a button and it's doing all the tech stack. Like it's doing the secure connections, the audio codecs, blah, 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 that no one except for like the truly, like the passionate people, the nerds, the ones that are really geek out on this stuff care about, right? And what you're talking about is like, here's a car, let's strip it down to the basics so that it does one thing, which is fast and handles, or here's a boat, let's strip it down and make it light, but long and fun and make it into an arrow. So when you get to that end of whichever bell curve, you're always going to get to the point where you got to know and you got to prepare because you've basically taken off all the stuff that was added on as safeties for the average yeah. Joe. You've made an average Joe thing and stripped it right down to, no, no, no the very first generation that was built, now we just add in all the fast bits to make it this hyper-specialized thing. But in order to do that, yeah, you got to manually... It's like a like someone the other day wanted to buy an SLR camera. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, is it going to do all this? Like, no, the entire point of an SLR camera is that it does none mm-hmm. of the things. You, you dial do. in your exposure. Yep. Yeah, and they were like, oh, should I just get a phone then? I'm like, yes, get a point and shoot because an SLR is not designed... Like, you need to pick the lens, you need to do the manual controls. That's the point. But you'll get a slightly better one 10% of the time, 80% of the time, the auto stuff will be fun. But if you're chasing the 10%, that's, right. that's the only way there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, and I think, yeah, I, I normally I'd, I'd, when we come to the word that comes to my mind with a lot of things is 
well, I want this and I want that and I want everything. And you say, okay, so do I. But sometimes things are a compromise, right? You know, you, you are going to give yeah. up something for something. Uh, and I think that applies to, well, to be honest with you, with everything in life, there, there can be a compromise. You're going to give up something for something. Uh, and it's adjusting what, I think, thinking about what those things are and what they mean to you and that value proposition and a vision and what, you know, connects with you as to what are you prepared to, to give up. So I guess in, in, in for me, you know, people saying, well, you grew up around orthopedic surgeons, that's what you wanted to do. You, you know, you did a fair bit of sort of experience in that or you want to be an ophthalmologist, that's what you want to do. Well, I did make that compromise decision of why I didn't do those things because uh, it probably would have meant that a lot of the experiences that I have had and continue to have, I wouldn't have. So I will just put a quick vote in for ophthalmology. It's still all right for people uh, oh, no, who no, are I, thinking of other yeah, things. Yeah, no, I still, I still think. Just for listeners. I, I would still say it is a, it's solid. It is solid. It was great, great stuff. Uh, I mean, all of Oh, it. now I've got to plug, put in a plug for anesthetics. Like, I mean, <laughs> all the reasons you've described. Everyone's got to put uh, a plug in for oh, their own. You know, you but could... Yeah. One of the things actually no. I was going to ask you a little bit about, um, you know, for example, with these things where you like doing stuff that's, one, you like doing a variety of different things. And then you also like to do those things kind of on the edge of, you know, where it's uh, normal and not normal, like not just a regular boat, but a super fast stripped out boat. Yep. And with all that comes uh, a lot of learning. Mm. Um, and it's especially difficult when you're trying to learn stuff at the edge because the stuff in the middle along the tram tracks, you know, there's a lot of guidance and support available. Yep. Do you have any examples of things that have helped you learn specifically when it comes to, you know, learning those edge case sort of things? Yeah, you, you have to have patience. You know, I, I know people say, no, that middle bit is boring. Yes, it is. It's boring. But if you think that you can go from a little a bit of a skill to suddenly you can control some pretty insane situations and you don't do the bits in between and get grounded, you will get caught. And especially, and I'm thinking the times... It seems easy to, and again, because way some things are built these days and the way they look after people, it seems like it's a pretty easy job to drive a jet ski. Well, you can drive a jet ski pretty fast. They're not that hard, let's face it. Um, but driving a, a particular boat that needs very certain skill sets to have it doing the right things at high speed, um, if you think you can just jump in and do it and not potentially flip the boat or, or kill yourself, seriously, like it's, it is really serious at those speeds, and you, avoid, and you don't go through the learning curve of smaller boats, trying new things, balancing a boat, feeling what a boat does. I think that applies to anything. Same with a car, different powered cars, different, different situations. Go-karts, fantastic early learning. Huge amount of fun. Learn about heading up tyres, what happens when tyres are cold, how to, you know, washing off speed on purpose or in, unintentionally because you took a bad line. Um, you know, rear brakes only. So if you don't, if you brake too hard and you lock the rears, you're going to spin the go-kart or wash off too much speed. You can't get the speed back because they're too slow unless you're driving one of the supercarts and they've got gears and they're, they're so great. It doesn't matter. Um, if you, you can't, some things are boring, some things are annoying. You, you've got to have patience. You, you have to go through those steps. Uh, and I don't think there's any really fast shortcuts to doing it unless you're someone who has a great ability to, to pick up on mistakes really quickly and understand where that went wrong, including potentially having an injury uh, and coming back from it and, and then responding and trying to go again but knowing what you did wrong and reflecting on it and saying, I'm not going to do that again. Where a lot of the times I've seen they make people will make the same mistake over and over and over and not realise they're doing it 
even though you can see it about to happen, you can see it coming and you're waiting to say, this is happening right now in front of us. Like this is happening. Are you going to do anything about it? And they don't. And it says to me, like, there's no patience here. They haven't gone through that groundwork of learning and being patient and understanding to get that feel. I think a lot of stuff when it comes to it is a feel for it. Uh, and if you can't feel it and it gets ahead of you, like I was saying before, if you let it get ahead of you and you're not ahead of it, you're done. You're done. And I've had, not through faults of, of their own, but a few very good friends of mine uh, racing in you know different series who've had some bad, bad, bad crashes, some really significant crashes at speed. Um, and one I watched one of my absolute bestest mates racing in the V8 U category at the um, Adelaide opening round when back it was Clipsal 500, um, got caught up in, you know, wrong position, wrong time, coming into, you know, the, the first corner from the start of the race and just wrong line, offline, cold tyres, dirty track, bit of marbles, wrong spot, got tagged, horrible accident into a couple of cars into the wall at speed uh, and that resulted mm-hmm. in, you know, like a GCS of four at the scene. So this, you know, the okay. listeners like, this guy, he was dead, Ouch. he looked dead. Um, not dead, yeah. tentacly, but looked dead. Uh, and that was then a prolonged intensive care admission in, in uh, Royal Adelaide before eventually getting back up to the Gold Coast. And he had, you know, this um, truncal myoclonus, these body shakes for months and months and months, even though he recovered from most things. And I spent a lot of time with him because racing was his passion. Um, and you take risks. And if you don't, you know, you take risks. And unfortunately, in his case, he was around someone that didn't have his skill set and feel who went too hard and actually hurt someone else, being him. So if you're not going to be patient, yeah, you're probably going to hurt you, but you might actually hurt someone else too really seriously. And that's what happened. You know, he, he got hurt badly. And then we've had other family friends who've had, you know, probably their midlife crises and old Italian fast cars like Lambos and Ferraris, they love catching on fire. That's what they do. You know, you, you, <laughs> you're praying them and they just blow up. Um, and it's sad. And Teslas as well, supposedly. Yeah, just don't charge a Tesla, you're sweet. Um, yeah, so we've, you know, losing family friends from fiery crashes and their Ferraris, you oh. know, um, it, it happens. So if you're, if you're not patient and you want to skip that stuff, you, you hurt you, but you're probably going to hurt someone else. And I think you can't, it's kind of like, you can't do it. Yeah, so it, it sounds like you've had, unfortunately, a lot of, first-hand experience seeing what happens when you skip steps, right? And it kind of comes back to like that, uh, I think it was like a US psychology experiment where um, they basically tasked the class to make a clay pot or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. And one half of the class was just tasked to doing, just make one pot. That's it. That's your end of term semester. And the other one was like, make as many as you need to. You have to submit more than one, like one every week. And uh, at the end of it, the the first group ended up performing poor because they just focused on trying to make one yep. and getting it right the yep. first time versus the other side, which just did the reps. And in the reps, you refine your process. Yep. And it's like the whole 10,000 hours things and whatever it is, like if, if you're trying to get to a level of specialty, like, you know, there's like that dichotomy between being a generalist and being a mm. specialist, but you take your little pot shots in, in a general sense of what you actually want to be good at like you still need to put in the reps to get the shortcut, like as in the shortcuts are the long way around the first time, right? Like you, you do it the long way. It's like Matt's proofs. You do it once yep. to see that it works and how it works. And then you never look at it again. You always use a shortcut, yep. but at least you've done it. So you kind of understand what the, how the blocks fit together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I, I really think 
it's tempting. There's so many times it's tempting to take a shortcut uh, and not be patient. Uh, but inherently, I found that 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 doesn't work. And I'm not I'm not going to lie. I have you know even when I mean yes, I've been around a bit of stuff. But there's times when I have taken a shortcut. This is not within within medicine, but outside of medicine, like fast boats or fast cars. And I I have I have shocked I have scared myself. But that's been healthy to do it because I've thought, wow, that could have gone spectacularly badly. Really, really bad. Could have been a much harsher lesson, you know. And and I've always and he, you know I've seen there's times that people will operate at eleven tenths, and you shouldn't do that, you know. I, I think if you're operating at nine and a bit tenths with the ability that you can push in certain sections where it's safer to push to ten or eleven tenths, bring it back to the average of ninths in areas where there's risk, because if you don't finish the race at all, it doesn't matter how hard you push, you are done. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like um, if you want to give an example, because one of our questions was, what's a mistake or failure that you've experienced that uh, has sort of changed an outlook of it? Is there one that you'd like to describe? Because it sounds like that's the sort of thing you're just talking about then. Yeah, look, I mean, I guess I can bring it back to to not necessarily something, you know, medical. And I'm trying to stay away a bit from medical as well, because, you know, we've all, we've all heard that sort of stuff. But yeah, there's been scenarios where, um, and it has been on the water and it has been on at, at high speed. Uh, and, and, and I did let, you know, a, a vessel get a little away from me, um, thinking it'll be fine, but it's also quite, you know, out there, and I guess it's like life as well. There, there's, there are unpredictabilities when you're out in the water and they're unpredictably unpredictable. So Hmm. you you can sit there and go, okay, I know there's going to be some, that this is going to be unpredictable here, but I kind of know about it. Out there, it's like, well, it's unpredictable and it's really unpredictable that it could be unpredictable, so I don't know what's going to happen. And it can be enough that it can throw everything out, out the window. And when you're staring at, you know, the, the bow of your boat that should be looking at speed, should be looking where you're going at a pretty even kill, and the next thing you're pretty much, you're strapped into some of these race chairs on these boats. When you're, all you're looking up and seeing is blue sky, which you should not be seeing, just you shouldn't, and there's a lot of noise and water spray everywhere. And you're thinking, this is either going to be me trying to be upside down, unstrapping and swimming out from underneath a boat or trapped or knocked out. And the boat's going to be upside down on top of me. Um, thankfully, it's, you know, I, one of the first things you, you, you do in those situations is if, if you're feeling it because you've all got hands on throttle, is you, you cut that boat. You, you pull the power and you've just got to stop it um, and just hope like hell that if it's been balanced enough, you don't hit a funny wave on a wrong angle. Uh, so that was luck. That could have been, that, and that was one that even the, the trip back I cruised, I took it easy on the way back because I sat there and thought about like, no, no, that wasn't just a little funny, oh, whoops, geez, that could have been bad. That was like, no, no, you were dead. You, you were dead. Um, so, and that was in one of those fast boats. You can do it on jet skis. I've seen people die on jet skis from, you can tune them up really easily and get a jet ski doing 130, 140k an hour on flat water. Um, but all you need to do is, not be sitting on the jet ski the right way or you like on a motorbike at speed if you sit yourself up to balance the bike under brakes and get a bit of drag with, with your wind on your body if you do the same thing on jet ski at the wrong time jet skis out of control they're not they're not normally in much water i don't care if you got if you put big sponsors on it or whatever you've done uh you're coming off at 140k an hour on jet skis no nah, not much fun uh, and no, most people are not wearing when you like the jet ski races are wearing appropriate gear so most people on a recreational jet ski that can now do 130k an hour, they might be on there just in 40s. 
You know, anybody going yeah. from 130 k's an hour to zero k's an hour does not do well. No, you don't do well in water, and a lot of the areas they're doing it too, the water's calmer, which means that it's probably in a shelter, more sheltered environment, which means there's probably trees, jetties, other boats, other people, some submerged objects, you know, six knot signs, and you're going to hit mm. something <laughs> with your body. So, yeah, no, that I've had a few near misses like that. I've had them in the car, in the cars too, where, um, and I'm saying that, you know, I don't advocate for doing ridiculous, stupid stuff on, on roads because you, you know, on, on um, public roads, because you're probably going to take out someone else who had no part to play in that. So don't do that. Um, but, you know, on, on a track, and people have died at Queensland Raceway all the time. Even though that's a track and you're in strapped in car, roll cage, fire extinguishers, helmet, you're in the all the gear, there's no guarantee that you're going to walk out of that. And, and, and it sounds like, uh, yeah, I, I think one of the good things like there that. is, you know, in terms of, it sort of highlights the importance of failing in a safe environment. Yep. Because mm. when you fail, yeah. you know, on a racetrack, out in the middle of, you know, somewhere else where you're not going to take somebody else out. And also you've got much more sort of margins of safety, if you like. There's, you know, on the track, there's people to help you out. Mm. Um, it's a good place to actually see, oh, that's where the limit of the car yeah. is. I definitely found that with cars as well. Like just having been on a track and pushed it past the edge to understand where that edge and not edge is. Yep. Um, and I think even in places, this is where some of the simulation aspect of things is coming in. And for surgical training, for example, being able to push that edge in a safe simulated environment um, and actually know what happens. Uh, because, you know, sometimes things will happen and it's really the ability to manage situations when it's on the edge, yep. a little bit like what we were talking about before, um, with, whether you're a pilot, an anesthetist, a surgeon, it's uh, when things don't go normally, how do you handle that situation is pretty important. But also knowing things can get quite bad. Absolutely. So I think simulation is one of those really interesting things that uh, is going to come across for a lot of these things. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's playing a huge role. And I think it's healthy respect for that things can go wrong very quickly and can escape you and that you can't manage it uh, and and knowing that that can happen to anyone. And, and mm. not everyone is, is, is a superstar that can actually get out of it and how do you respond to it? And we've all seen, I know all of us, between the three of us, even offline, we could share stories of, of you know, particular characters in medicine who, who are very, very, you know, uh, not sort of gung-ho, but they're, they're very vocal and proud of their skill set and what they can do. Uh, but some of them, when things don't go to plan, you can see it all fall apart. And that's always yeah. been something for me I found interesting to watch. Of All right, well, let's see. When, when something doesn't go to plan, there's a little bit of stress here, a little bit of pressure. Uh, critical systems are not working anymore. And I often would deal with this with you know in the, my line of work. You think, what's critical systems? Like, well, if you have very, very busy clinics that are very dependent on particular cloud-based software and things stop and people have expectations, it's very, it's sometimes you can sit back and watch people melt. They melt down around you and they don't because they, they, they don't know what to do. And sometimes you need to hmm. take a step back and, and look at, how are you going to manage this? What are you going to do? Is there a solution around this? Are you going to let this run away from you or are you going to stay on top of it? And God, how many times have I seen that in in, in medicine of situations where, it, and the sims are great for it. You try and promote situations to run away from people, don't you? And you can, and then you can pull it back and go safe in safe environment. I know you're all feeling terrible. That ran away from you. So what are you going to do about it? Um, 
I think aviation. Have... Well, our hospital's uh, deploying EMR at the moment, so electronic medical yep. records. Yep. So the number of downtime that we had, like, uh, thankfully, we're now on stable sort of footing, but uh, we had all these, you know, it's like they have a folder and these backup non-network computers mm. for you to go on to, and you pull out physical old uh, drug charts right on because yep. everything's electronic. And they actually have a team set up to actually transcribe it back on. Yep. Because uh, it's not like clinical care stuff, so you can't stop just to do it all. No. So I was like, oh, like, but it's only because we're the sixth or seventh network in Victoria to go live with EMR. And somehow from internship onwards, I've been, this is like my fourth deployment of EMR, and this is the smoothest one so far. But you can see like the first one that I saw crashed on the first day, didn't go back live for like five days. The second one, they lasted a week, then it crashed. Um, so on and so forth. But it's exactly what you're saying uh, in terms of uh, having a healthy respect for where the risk lies mm. and having plans around mm. it, essentially, for uh, for being able to mitigate it. So because, you know, life will still have to continue. You've got to figure it out. Absolutely. And that you hear someone like me, I don't like using too many of those words, but someone like me who does medical administration stuff and looking at the things in the background operations, you'll hear people throw around things like, We've got our BCP, you know, we've got our, all our business continuity plans of if something goes down, this oh, is right. the plan. And, and I don't find a lot of those words very helpful for people. It's not very reassuring of saying, well, just go to BCP. I wouldn't even know it's, what that it, meant. That's the problem. <laughs> that is exactly the problem of, of and how many times in medicine and life, Mike? Is it like a BCF? You, you go to yeah, buy boating, right. camping, yeah. fishing gear? BCG vaccine. <laughs> I, I always say, take, take out the wanky acronyms and just talk to people in a language they understand that if this goes down, yeah. this is what we're going to do about it. Uh, Uh, I think uh, for the next bit, we'll just go to some very random questions. So I've got a list. I don't know if Chandra's got your own list. Um, But in terms of, uh, because it's now gone on for like an hour now, so uh, I'm sure everyone's wanting to head to bed soon. Um, What's something recently that you've learned or discovered that you knew nothing about? So as an example, I went to a place called Dalesford just to, our arts out of Melbourne, right? Like I always heard it was like a spa kind of a place and you're very chilled out, very zen, right? If you walk around this gorgeous lake, it had a gold rush and that was like the pit where they would dig all the gold. So at one point, the community decided just flooded because it was so ugly and that's where the lake came from and then it became this super zen, chilled out place. And I was like, right, so we're walking in the middle of essentially a mine, right? Like wouldn't have affected first time going there, but... It was just like a random fact that you'd kind of go, well, I never imagined that that's the, the history of the place. And the other thing was it was called Wombat. Like the place was called Wombat. And it, like a lot of the places was like Wombat Hill, Wombat that. And I was like, oh, what's the thing? The original name of the town was Wombat because there were so many Wombats around in that location that they were digging. It was quite explanatory. So, uh, that, was... <laughs> so that was like something totally random that is just an hour away from where I live that I'd heard about. Like I hadn't been there before. But it just totally surprised me. Anything like that come to mind in the recent? Oh, you know, I, and this is where I struggle with coming back and work-life balance because I would have liked to have spent much more time doing a bit more investigating and being out and about and, and, and getting surprised and shocked with life and, and, and those sorts of things. It's, it's dumb. It is dumb. But there was – I had no idea. Um, it sounds – obviously, I didn't grow up on the Gold Coast. Okay. I grew up in Adelaide, um, so I knew, you know, most of the rivers and what we had there. And on my way to work, most days, I do drive through a little suburb called Narang to get onto the motorway, 
And there is a river that runs through Narang. Um, and there is this beautiful old paddle steamer boat that you can look at at Narang. That's I think it's the the, the made of skier or something like that. And they've just they've just repainted it. its beautiful boat. And I haven't paid much attention to it. Just thinking, yeah, it's a lovely paddle steamer. I've seen heaps of them on the Murray River. And it's great. Uh, and not thinking again, Gold Coast and the history of the Gold Coast and looking at it that anything like that actually even existed on the Gold Coast, like. Why the hell would the Gold Coast have paddle steaming boats getting around the rivers? Like I never, I just didn't think it was possible. Especially in, and why is it at Narang and, and the river there? It's not even big. But now finding that, no, that that boat used to go up and down the Narang River and it would end up going past Carrara and down all through there. And Jeez. I didn't really appreciate. It. I thought, yeah, I'm not saying the Gold Coast didn't have history, but it's always been that little beachside town. So when the heck did it have these inland rivers that had paddle steamers? And what were they doing? You know, like, what were they moving? Yeah. Why were they doing what they were doing? Like, what what industry did we have out there that needed you to move things by paddle steamer? You know, it certainly didn't look like it was yeah. really good for tourism. So, you know, that's the only one I can think of. Well, I mean, of. I think I've seen that boat growing up on the Gold Coast, but I'd never actually forgotten about it. It wasn't painted at the time. You, you um, crossed the little the was, river there, yeah. you just crossed the river, and it's right there, yeah. it's right there on the corner. Yeah, it, I know exactly where it is and what you're talking about, but I... Totally forgotten it existed until you just mentioned it. It brings it raised questions for me of of looking back at at more of the history of the Gold Coast, and I think sometimes the Gold Coast does get a bit of an unfair name of being oh it's just a surfy you know nightclub city with no no soul and no history. That's not true. It's actually got plenty, plenty of of, of history and soul to it. You got you know you know need to know where to look. You even think about you would have remembered <laughs> growing up that the we had the old. Retired train in Southport by the Parklands, that big, beautiful yep, train. It's yep. not there now, right? None of the kids get to see that anymore. To know that at some point yeah. we had trains, locomotives like that getting around the coast. And we, 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 yeah, we yeah. missed well, it. I mean, also, like, you know, just the hinterland region, mm. like, if you go up there, it's just so different to the rest of the beachside go Absolutely. Like, you know, the first time I went there, like, it was a school trip, and I thought we were in a different state because I was like, beaches now we're in mountains like this fog rolling hills i was like are we in scotland it's perfect it is perfect you <laughs> you don't and that's what i love about the coast is it's not a you know i can be at the beach and about 30 to 35 minutes later depending on the car you're in and which road you take you can be up on town up on mount tambourine looking west over the plains back at country land it's totally different you know it really is <laughs> it's it's incredible it's like, oh, I want to go see some waterfalls today, but then I want to go and have a surf later. Okay, sure, you can do that. It's the Gold Coast. Yeah. It sounds like as a non-Gold Coastian, this is something I'm going to have to see because I always just associate Gold Coast with the beach. Surfers <laughs> Paradise and the beach, yeah, where there's, there's yeah, so much exactly. more. Yeah, there's so much more. So everything's got yeah. its little story, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Sounds like I'm going to have to make a bit of a trip there. I think you should. Um, <laughs> I will. And uh, I've got a bit of a question for you now. Mm. Um, what's... An activity you've taken, but put your own spin on it lately. So, for example, for me, um, I'm I'm not a huge camper, but I like getting out to, into nature. Um, but I don't really like bugs and being particularly uncomfortable. Yep. So I've taken to Tesla camping lately. Nice. Where basically go to the campsite in the Tesla, um, and essentially you've got yourself a glamping tent right there because it's a climate-controlled cabin. The climate control runs overnight, super comfortable, got your mattress sleeping bag inside uh, and a nice glass roof to look out over the top, out the top. 
Um, so that gets me camping, and that's kind of my spin on planning now. I, I, I think it actually sounds fantastic, to be honest with you. I mean, it's a great way to do it, uh, and many of those things I would agree with. Um, yeah, look, I, I love music, and I've been playing drums since about 96, 97, and I've gone through my various drum kits, and, and I, I can do drums. I, I can play drums. They make sense to me. I get them, uh, and I love it. And I can understand music, read music and, and those things, but I cannot for the life of me play guitar. I can't do it. And, but I can play um, an ukulele, no worries. Four strings, happy days. I normally spend a bit of time in Hawaii. I love Hawaii. I spend a bit of time in Hawaii. So I've got a couple of ukes, electric ukes. I love them. They also make sense to me. And I thought, well, I could potentially play a guitar if I can play an uke. That turns out not to be true. So you add those two extra strings, I'm done. I am done. <laughs> so my sort of modification a little bit is that I, I want to try and play a guitar, but I, I can't do it. So, you know, I'll stick to, I'll stick to my oaks, what I can do. Or if I do play a guitar, I'll play four strings. <laughs> That's about the best I oh, can okay. do. It sounds terrible, but I, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm vibing it. It's great. Um, yeah, that, that has been my sort of modification of getting around. I want to be able to do it and feel it and experience it. I cannot do it. Uh, I just can't, you know, the, the two extra strings. So yeah, you get so you the, uh, the Charles and Yukov. I, I, <laughs> I that was brilliant, by the way. I did have a laugh. I actually, I've got to say, with, with, with Skomo and him playing the, the Ook, I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, it was terrible. I'm like, actually, he, he was okay. He did all right. He could play all right. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, he wasn't picking, doing picking or anything like that, but he could do okay. I thought he held his own. I was actually quite, I was waiting for a <laughs> see, laugh. See, what, what? We we need you to like you know those uh what is it now Instagram reels where you remix so you have one half like the old video and you on the other half that's what we need that's what needs to be all over your social media. Oh, that's brilliant! Yeah, God, I could have a go at it, but no, no, he, he uh, I was I was pleasantly surprised. But all right, there there we go. You know, Scotty from marketing is has done a fantastic job, and, <laughs> and, and he can play the ook. I'll take my hat off to him. I'm like, well done, mate. That was solid. Yeah. All right. Um. Chandra, did you have any other random questions? But otherwise, we'll start wrapping up, I think. No, it sounds like it's a bit of a wrap. Yeah. Uh, could I ask one other random question, just because you've been in some exotic locations from the sound yeah. of it, which would be, what's like the most unusual city or country or location that you've ended up in? And how'd you get there? Um, no, oh, look, I've been pretty pretty planned with, with a lot of things. I'm just trying to think of some spots that have ended up that, in major cities that I've gone, oh, geez. Um, one that comes to mind, again, being a music lover and soul and, and that, I, I, did, I was in Memphis for a little bit. Um, and, mm. yeah, Memphis, um, Tennessee, awesome city if you, love, if you love music and all that. But you should, you know, especially as a, as a foreign traveller in, in, in certain regions there, you really should be very well aware of your surroundings and, and where you are. I didn't know that we ended up in some pretty ordinary part of town that we shouldn't have been in. Um, and it was, yeah, I, that was one time I can sit there and say that was so sketchy that I absolutely feared for my life. Absolutely <laughs> feared for my life of, holy heck, we got, you know, I, I would have literally, when we got back to the hotel, I would have, like, kissed the, the, the concierge and said, I'm so glad we're back here, you know. And then... What was so... What was so sketchy about it? Like, oh, it was, you know, what about the area? Just, I think it was a, a very, it was a dangerously known area. 
Um, you know, yep. it, it was very dark. But you didn't know it though, right? No, no, no clue. You could, but you get a, you, so the, then what made well, you with the other tourists? Yeah, what made you? And the vibe. Uh, the vibe. Not the vibe. You didn't see anything um, that I saw people and the vibe I got and the looks yeah. we got of literally of a, <laughs> a, you should not be here. This is not a spot for you to be. Um, yeah, that, that, that made me go, oh, wow, that could have been bad. We could have been on the news for that. Yeah, that, that could have been a, a shocker. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So now when people say, oh, did you love Memphis? I'm like, I did. I did. But don't. You need to Except. stick to your to the spots. <laughs> These are the street should, areas yes, where you should stop. <laughs> that's where you should be, and and you know us Australians can be very naive about our safety when we're overseas in in countries that you know that they don't take it as, as seriously and the value of a human life. So um, yeah, and I remember very vividly we we're staying at this amazing hotel in Memphis called the Peabody, where they have the Duck March. Anyone looks it up, just look up the Peabody Memphis and the the Peabody Ducks. It's a it's a story on its own, and it's hilarious and it's amazing. Um, I went down, as soon as we got in, we went to this, the main lobby, which is absolutely beautiful. It's old, old style, you know, southeast and southeast, you know, barbecue rib style, everything, right? And I ordered a yep. beer called Delirium. And I said, I just need this right now. And I think it's something like 9% or something stupid like that. But I just said, yep, I'll have that beer. I'll have that Delirium beer. I'm having one right now because I'm just glad I'm just sitting back here. So give me something to hit me hard right now that the fact that we, we got out of that. And that could have been Dodge. <laughs> Wow. All righty. Well, I'm glad you made it back so that we could have you on the podcast for all the Smooth. You smooth operator. I love it. (laughs) It's all about Uh, the segue. With that, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I wish. Man, I didn't even use any of my rim shots or, like, you know, all the other sound effects Man, we need the bell on a ride symbol, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, the stories were too interesting. Otherwise, uh, yeah. With Chandra, I'm always like, wait, 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 there we go, there's one there, <laughs> and so on and so forth. All right, I'll stop now. Um, any sort of any sort of last bits of advice or any requests for the listeners of the podcast? Uh, look, I think for me, I, I've, I've, you know, the advice I live by is um, you've got to enjoy what you're doing. You do. Um, you get one shot at this, and I and I and I'm 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 preaching to the converted, myself being converted because I wasn't very good at this before of taking that actually more seriously of you do get one shot at this, you get one life, you get one shot and, and your decisions, you need to, you need to think about that. Um, and I haven't been mm. so good with that as I am now sitting back going, no, actually, hang on a minute. That's true. You, you do get one shot at this, you get one life. So um, think about what you're doing. And if you don't like what you're doing and the situation you're in, doesn't mean you need to keep doing it. That's pretty good wise advice. words. It's uh, yeah. Good advice, especially for, I think, medical people, because um, so much of medicine does have tram tracks mm. and it is very easy to fall into the trap of just doing the thing and thinking you can't be anything different. Mm-hmm. And I think you're pretty good living proof that nah, you can remix it as much as you want and uh, end up in very interesting places. Absolutely. Um, any, if, you, if people wanted to reach out to you, is there like a social media handle or anything that you'd like to say? So Look, I'm not. You I'm not. Want to be contacted? I'm not super, um, you know, active and big on, on oh. a lot of those things. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, because it does. I, I think I mean, it does take. You know, you got to commit to it. it. Takes a bit of time and energy, and and um, and I'm not. I'm not bad, but I'm not brilliant with that sort of stuff. But yeah, if anyone wanted to um, to, to reach out or, or connect, I'm happy if they connect with you guys and you're, you're passing on. Like happy, you know, happy days, no worries. Yeah, but, done. Um, I'm more than happy to. All righty. 
Well, with that, so uh, for all the listeners, like and subscribe and don't turn on notifications because we hate them. So I can't ever actually get around to encouraging people to do that. Um, but yes, if you could leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening, that'd be great. And if there's a little message button thing on Anchor and Spotify, I think. So if you want to leave Charles a message that you'd like us to pass on, we can do that. Or you can email us at podcast at photosbyraffi.com, which we have to change, Chandra. We have the randed.com. This is true. Now. It will shortly become randend.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. With that, uh, thanks again for taking the time. That's been a pretty fun chat. I think we're going to have to come back for a round two at some it point. It has been. To get through the other Pleasure, thing. gents. Absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, no, always, always have to be part of it. I love what you're doing. I love the idea of it. And, uh, and I thought I've, I've got to get to know these, these gentlemen and, uh, and, and share some stories and show that. You know, we still got to have some fun in life. We still got to have fun and do what we got to do. It's serious stuff too, but there's got to be some fun. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's, it. that's it for this episode. Cheers, guys.